this character, Fred Durst thing, this monster that was created, you know, it sort of backfired on me. There was always negativity thrown at Limp Biscuit. Nobody really wanted us here in the first place. You know, nobody really wanted rap in the first place and nobody really wanted metal in the normal world. So rap metal, oh Now the metal guys don't want it and the rappers don't want the metal. So I just think that it was, I'm just that guy, I guess. Yeah. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Struggle Session. I'm Leslie the Third. I'm Jack Allison. Thank you so much for joining us. Make sure to like and subscribe if you haven't subscribed to us on Patreon.com, on uh, Sesh.plus, or on StruggleSession.substack.com. You got to. You got to. We got bonus episodes coming every week. This past week, Jack, you had that Space Jam That's episode right. with with Max and Sam. Great mm-hmm. episode. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, uh, Space Jam is a, is a real travesty, and if you want to hear us talk about it, you you got to be a Struggle Session subscriber. <laughs> Good episodes coming up. Uh, me and Brian, we did a watch-along to Beverly Hills Cop, which was really, really fun because it's a really funny movie. We had some funny observations on it. Like, we realized that the top 10 stand-up comedy specials in theaters, like the top 15, were all black comics. Did you know that, Jack? That really makes a lot of sense. It really does make a lot of sense that stand-up is kind of mostly a, it's like a black-dominated discipline. It's black people and white people who, like, think they have the, like, okay to, <laughs> to like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like you yeah, were saying yeah. before, like the Rappaports of the world, you know. You can you can understand how where they came from, where they <laughs> came from. Yes, and on the next episode, the Alan Moore podcast, we will be reading, continuing our read along of Jerusalem chapters six through 10. That's right. I'm having a, a great uh, time with that book. Really interesting. If you read that along with us, we will guide you through it. Yeah. All right. So getting in to our show, because movies are back, Jack. And oh, yeah. Bringing us back to, you know, fond moments, our childhood bringing us back to our dreams, you know? Yeah, that's right. Things we've forgotten about and we just look um, very, very fondly on. Like the movie where a ghost um, gives a guy a blowjob. Mm-hmm. That re- reminds us so much of the Halcyon <laughs> days of childhood. It's true. It's true. You know, nothing makes me feel more like uh, a little tyke once again like thinking about that ghost giving giving someone a blowjob you know nothing really takes me back like that the new ghostbusters trailer there's not one joke in the entire thing it's not funny for even a moment it doesn't have any kind of like sense of whimsy. I don't know why it's set in, you know, like Thor land or whatever. Like it actually looks a lot like the first Thor to me, which is like sort of arbitrarily set in a small town. I really don't get anything from this trailer other than a sense that they want me to feel nostalgic about the property of the of the Ghostbusters, you know? Good for the the lady from the lefto- leftovers cuz she's pretty good. It just looks like, what is it, um, Project 8, Section 8, what are they? Um... <laughs> oh, yeah. Super 8, Super 8. It really does look like Super 8. And also, the the Walmart is way too framed in in that one shot. Like, when you're when you're shooting a Walmart with, like, the lights on in the sign for the Walmart and the whole Walmart is framed in, I'm like, that is product placement and kind of weird and obvious product placement. Yeah, and really bizarre because whenever the Walmart comes to those small towns, of course it puts all the other stores out of business. So it's like, it's not a good thing. It's not a positive uh, outlook. Man, I I don't know who this movie is for because people, like Ghostbusters was like an adult comedy 
that kids could also like, but it was also like horny and weird. Like it was not yeah. like so directly aimed at kids. That's what the cartoon tie-ins and the toys were. For. This is also not even supposed to be for kids. This is like supposed to be for fans of Stranger Things. This is like <laughs> it's like so far removed from any original for anything original. It's like Stranger Things featured little kids because Spielberg movies featured little kids, and we were kind of trying to evoke those. And so now the new Ghostbusters features Spielbergian little kids because people like want what, what the vibe they got from Stranger Things and you know basically you know that's how this this uh version of Ghostbusters was pitched. Let's say, did you ever see the feature at Ghostbusters passing the proton pack? No, I did not. It reveals what the pitch for this movie was. It's that Ivan Reitman was passing the torch to his son Jason Reitman. There's a whole Literal yeah, yeah, I did see that actually. Where it's him sitting with his dad, basically just like acknowledging, like I got the job because my dad did this. He like tells <laughs> stories about how he visited the set when he was a little kid and stuff. And so I think you know you have to look at this movie less like who is this for and more like how did this click in the brains of some executives and get them to say yes to this and it's because they went in the room with the stupid personal connection about like this movie as it will be a passing of the generations in real life so will it be on screen and these themes will be like you know I, I'm the perfect person to tell this story of the generational passing of the Ghostbusters because the making of the movie will too be that you know disregarding of course that it is just like the ultimate and like I, you know, was handed a job because I'm someone's son. <laughs> <laughs> like openly, like the nepotism is like a feature with Ghostbusters uh, Afterlife. The nepotism is like part of the pitch, <laughs> not something they're even ashamed of. Like, honestly, I, well, I'll say one thing. Uh, you have to respect Nicolas Cage because he had the he had the like respect to have the shame to change his name. The new generation is just like keeping the last name of their parent. You know what I mean? Like Anderson Cooper is not going around calling himself Vanderbilt, <laughs> you know, like Nicolas Cage at least knew to be embarrassed about that. And the new ones, they're just brazen. Yeah, so moving on uh, to another bit of childhood comfort food. Jack, you've been watching Star Trek. Yes, that's right. You've been diving straight into Star Trek. And where oh, are you at, buddy? Oh, my God, Leslie. First of all, this is like my, this is all I'm doing, pretty much. <laughs> this is literally all I'm doing right now. Um, is watching Star Trek. And so when we spoke earlier this week before, you know, like before we're going to do this show, you were like, when do you think you're going to get up to on Star Trek? And I was like, I'm going to finish the original series. Leslie, I finished the original series, which, by the way, the third season is really wacky and really funny. I also finished the animated series, uh, which I'm a fan of. And I watched the first four uh, movies, um, which, by the way, okay, so let me go. The through. movies are fucking good. The movies kick ass. The movies are good. Let me let me say this: the first movie, Star Trek, the motion picture, kicks ass. I everybody Facts. wants to be like it sucks, like it's not as good as Con, and that might even be true. Like Con is a better and tighter and more movie ish movie. But especially after watching it, after like watching the whole original series and watching the animated series, people like are not putting themselves in the correct historical context when we watch <laughs> these long shots that are people are like, it's boring to see these like long shots of them going up to the Enterprise. I'm like, no one had ever gotten to see the Enterprise <laughs> like that. Like it actually kicks ass. Like, you know, I know it's not kind of as actiony as the as the later ones, but it really feels like a Star Trek episode. And the effects actually are fucking great. <laughs> the effects are like actually really, really good for the era. And you know, it feels like 2001 with some of the like with some of the like long shots existing, like sort of in like, you know, seemingly real time. Like we get to watch literally Scotty and Kirk go up in like a little shuttle and it seems like real time. We watch them go up from like the star base to the Enterprise. But I love that shit. I really was like impressed by the effects. Thought it was like cool to see the Enterprise like this for the first time, especially if you like. You know, you're putting yourself in that context. Yeah, I watched, I think I've caught all of them during quarantine because there's one uh, channel of epics that basically just plays the Star Trek movies 
over and over again, just in order, like wow. every single day <laughs> in Star Trek movies. And me and YB, we have basically watched all of them in pieces and like, man, they're good. They make they a are. tight little story. There's a couple of trilogies in there. There's ongoing mm-hmm. characters and storyline. Yep. There's actors you didn't expect to see they're in very Star Trek. Good. They're very, very good movies. And obviously Khan rocks. Khan is very, very good. And I'm not going to try to be contrarian and be like Khan. No, Khan fucking kicks ass. <laughs> and, I, and it's like a super solid action movie. Like what I love about the Star Trek movies is it really does show you like the breadth of what Star Trek can be. Literally, the whale one fucking kicks ass. Like, the whale one is so good. I watched <laughs> the whale one today, and I'm like, this is, like, funny and really charming, and the story works really well. And I'm like, that you could do, you know, within two movies, you do Con, and then you do, you know, The Journey Home, and it all actually still feels like it works and feels coherent. I'm like, that is awesome, actually. And, and Jack, you know what we discovered when we were doing Sesh Trek? Yeah. That they, there's comic book tie-ins that are canon to the movies that bridge the gap between the series and the next, uh, between the original series, the movies, and the next generation. And they're quite good, actually. They're yeah. quite, and they're quite consistent. Uh, I think most of them were done by DC, but yeah, they're, pr- yeah. they're worth checking out. I don't think you can watch Star Trek by watching like the best of episodes. You know what I mean? I actually think you need to watch all 70 of the original series. (laughs) And honestly, after watching all of the original series, I'm like, I love these movies so much because I just like love these characters so much. And I do think it actually like has made me appreciate even like. Like the movies before, I feel like I paid less attention, and now I'm like, it's Spock. Like even <laughs> three, Search for Spock is not the best movie, but I'm like, I want to. I hope Spock comes back to life. <laughs> All right. So one one kind one thing I did want to get into because there was a little bit of a discussion. Yeah. On on Twitter about this, I found it a little bit offensive and a little <laughs> bit, if I'm being honest, a little bit specious. Oh wow. Which is the best bar in Star Trek? Um, Tin Ford from The Next Generation or Quarks from Deep Space Nine? Well, I have my opinion. So listen, I'm not that far in the series, but I am familiar with both these bars. And so I, I do have an opinion here. But but what do you think, Leslie? This is one of the goofiest things I've ever seen. I'm actually a fan. Tin Ford, that yeah. office ass looking ass space. <laughs> it lo- does look like a hotel. <laughs> Are you serious right now? Okay, this is where you have a lunch. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. This is not a bar. This is not where yeah. you hang out. Yeah. You have guy in an ass there. Quark, you know, is just snitching on you to Odo. Okay? You know that. You know that. You don't know who Guinan is talking to. Right. Look, don't look at Quark's. Look yeah. at that. The ambience, the decor. You must consider like the area in general. Like, you know, Quarks is in like a like actual like open air market, like a bazaar. Yes. You know what I mean? So like not only are you going to Quarks, which kicks ass, but then you're walking outside and there's markets and there's food and all this kind of stuff. Like, you know, Quarks like reminds me of Thailand and, and, you know, 10 forward. It's like a Hyatt or something. (laughs) I just want to know what kind of square ass motherfucker would prefer to. (laughs) Sit they as in Tim Ford drinking synthahol. They don't even serve alcohol. They ain't got no Vulcan ale. Ain't no blood wine. Of course, got it all. You're gonna see somebody get stabbed like every other time you go in there, right? That's you got that's fights. Where you want to hang out? Yeah, that's fun. Come on. Come also, on. I think that Leslie, this also just speaks to the larger issue, which we all know, and people get mad when I talk about it. We've talked about it on Sash Trek before. But the crew of the next generation yes. Enterprise are fucking like fuddy duddies. Like they're corny. <laughs> like yes. They are corny. You know? Like, <laughs> certainly more than the original series crew, and definitely more than, than the folks on Deep Space Nine. <laughs> like they are a little bit like like and it all comes from Picard. Like it does come from the top. Like Picard is extra corny <laughs> and extra focused on duty. Like Riker, you know, would be so much more cool and fun if not. <laughs> for like having to work under Picard. Absolutely. <laughs> we have trouble in the MCU, Jack. I oh, n- yeah. I know you've heard about this. I think everybody yeah. has. 
Scarlett Johansson has pulled out the motherfucking AK on Disney. (laughs) (laughs) Where's my motherfucking money? Yeah. Basically, this is what happened. This has happened, you know, to some people we know and love, okay? (laughs) uh, Scarlett Johansson signed up for this big major picture, Black Widow. She's been trying to get it made for like a decade. They somehow managed to make two Ant-Man movies before they made one Black Widow movie. Okay. The Wasp was in the title of a movie before Black Widow got her own movie. Big problem with the box office around it. First week, it made a decent chunk, but then it kind of petered out at around $300 million, which sounds like a lot now, but actually ranks it among the lowest MCU movies of all time. Yeah, and it had a big, big drop-off between that first and second week. I think it lost to, like... What was it? like? lost to, like, The Purge or something like that in its second week. Disney did put out that on Disney+, Plus. Uh, it sold however many million uh, copies of the thirty dollar right. version that you have to buy. So it was, you know, maybe a modest uh, success for them. Now, here the issue is uh, that Disney Plus money and movie theater money are two different kinds of money. Uh, John Boyega made this clear uh, a few years ago when he was asked if he would return to Star Wars uh, after you know Episode Nine. I think, uh, and he said. Oh, sure, I'll be in a feature movie, but you're not going to Disney Plus me. <laughs> Any sales that are made on Disney Plus, you basically get screwed out of. And they, and for Scarlett Johansson, they didn't count towards this massive bonus right. uh, that she was looking forward to once Black Widow hit this, uh, hit this number that every other MCU... Uh, There's a couple different factors here, right? Which is, you know, the sort of vertical integration of all entertainment media. Disney is basically trying to, like, push out movie theaters and do the distribution and production of its movies like all in-house. As you mentioned, Leslie, they said they made all this money on Black Widow, you know, on Disney+. And the funny thing about that is because they're they're the ones reporting the numbers. We really have no idea about that. (laughs) Like, that could be them, like, trying to cover for the fact that there was such a drop-off on that second week and they didn't want people to think that the movie did bad because they're a publicly traded company. Or it could actually have done that well. And they are, you know, not including that as part of the box office returns. And so, you know, uh, Scarlett Johansson doesn't get that counted towards uh, her bonus. Studios with their streaming platforms can just completely lie about the numbers. (laughs) And like now we basically just have to like believe studios when they like there's no no movie will ever bomb ever again. Because Black Widow, even with dropping off over six, like 67 percent in its second week, they won't allow there to be headlines about how how it's bad because they're like but it did really well on disney plus which we know because disney tells us so i mean this lawsuit is coming just a couple of weeks after the movie came out and obviously she's a massive star disney's response was basically that uh, scarlett johansson wanted people to die of covid by forcing them to go to theaters in order to see black i'm like by the way you're the ones that are still moving releasing movies in theaters if this is how you feel about it for god's sake um but either way we've been talking for a while about like the faltering and you know the the end of the marvel cinematic universe as far as being you know the the powerhouse it was for the 2010s and you do feel like stumbling right out of the gate with like you know the return to movies with a movie that was not only a bomb but has the like main star suing you in this big public <laughs> yeah. lawsuit like it doesn't feel good you know for kind of the ongoing marvel universe and also you know Of course, you see all the fans being like, you know, and people making the kind of odd sort of weird leftist, but still in favor of the the company's argument of like, well, isn't she rich enough? It's like, dude, you know who's fucking richer than Scarlett Johansson is like Disney. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) nobody is richer than Disney. And while, yes, Scarlett Johansson like might be plenty rich and doesn't need any more money. And this is all just a big fight between rich people like it is about you know, these studios setting a new precedent uh, and a new manner in which they pay talent. And that does end up like trickling down to smaller people like the very people we know. You know, yes, so, yes. Already has happened to someone we know. They already got Scarlett Johansson. Wonder if he can get in like a class action lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't. Yeah. Emma Watson is su- is now considering suing 
uh, over the release Cruella. of Cruella. And I just heard this. I don't know how this was related, but Gerard Butler is trying to sue for $10 million on the back end of Olympus as fall. <laughs> because they haven't been paying. They haven't been paying him his residuals. And you really see a lot of people being shitty about that. But it's like, I think what's happening with Gerard Butler is he saw another lawsuit and he's like, whoa, people are like suing over their money. And like, <laughs> like I guess this is like a moment when like less attention will be drawn to me doing it. It won't be like me putting myself quite so much on the line but i actually i think it's good by all these people like yes yeah, yes it is millionaires just fighting for other millionaires but fuck disney and you know and this and they really are trying to like create a new paradigm you know where which a big part of which is like paying people you know less than what they are, are fairly should be paid yeah, if they're going to screw over their top stars who they've spent, you know, millions and millions marketing, they're also going to screw over every other actor who's supposed right. to be getting there. Uh, Emma Stone, Emma Stone. We will tell take one comment from the chat and it was Emma Stone, not Watson, who was mad about Cruella. We we said that wrong earlier and I, you know, I would like to offer a correction. All right. So, moving on to a movie that's hey not part of the MCU. Sure. Um, features a few MCU uh, characters, a few uh, <laughs> Disney employees. And I just wanted to sure. talk a little bit about uh, this clip, which I just was actually a promoted tweet. They paid Man. to show people this. This is, <laughs> this is so Taika Waititi showing off, and I, I, I want to quote this. Uh, th this is quotes about Taika Waititi's uh, skills in this clip. A genius, insane. Yeah. Riffing on a level that is freaking sublime. Wow. See Taika Watiti as Antoine in Free Guy, only in theaters August 13th. Let's wow. go. Oh my God. Yeah, I'm a free city bros. Antoine here. Taika Watiti takes an already funny script oh. and is riffing. On a level that is freaking sublime. And is riffing on a level that is freaking sublime. In the whole wide world, Stephen Sequel. Antoine's got basically. The whole set was busting up. Educated, like you'd say. Yo, I'm no rocket surgeon. You know. I thought you were still a Burning Man. Do I look like I'm still in the middle of the desert with nothing on but a hula hoop and a pair of leather moon boots? That's what you wear. Wow, Burning Man, huh? Taika is Burning Man. A genius. Huh? I literally came to oh Saturday my God. to watch his scenes because what that guy does is like insane. That guy is absolutely is, insane. <laughs> The fact that Tyke is able to kind of walk that razor's edge and make it both loathsome and hilarious is a testament to that guy's talent. What? There's no glass there, and you are... What? Wow. Nothing. Didn't say anything? No. You want to say anything else to me? I said, I think I... That's a funny improv. You never know which one you're going to get. Wow. That's in the movie. That is in the movie. That's in the movie right there. That's going to be in the movie right there. Wow. Well, that's what, what we just witnessed right there, Leslie, was riffing that is on an absolutely freaking different level. A friend of mine uh, mentioned this on uh, on Twitter, like this generation of what are supposed to be all tours, like spend their time oh, doing man. like Marvel movies and Star Wars and shit, like I, I, most I really of their time. Like, I, you know, Taika, people are like, Taika's really good. And I'm like, at some stuff. Know, I don't know. Like, then maybe he should make something good. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, like, I don't know. And that, that and then, you know, I, I think that would be great if he, if he's good. He should make something good. <laughs> All right. Now, I, I had to play that clip first to soften everybody up because I'm getting into some some kind of messy territory. Now, Jack, you know, we got brutal. this TV, we got this TV show coming up. And uh -huh. look, I don't want to become a drama king. But we got to have a little bit of drama on the show. We got to have a little bit of lab gossip. And I feel like this is a juicy bit that no one has really mentioned or talked about. Yeah. And I, I just want to say this is what this is more of almost like a hot and rich seg segment. Oh, almost, sure. Yeah. If yeah, I'm being yeah. if I'm being honest. But oh, there's a cozy alert coming up for this for this next one. OK, so I think everybody <laughs> heard about this one. You know, sure. the uh, the color puddle between Rita Ora, Tessa Thompson. Yeah. 
and Tessa Thompson's boss, Taika Waititi. In <laughs> 2021, uh, was not the plot twist I expected, is the tweet, and they're all canoodling. As to say, when we're talking about celebrity gossip, we say canoodling. These they're look all... like three people that have taken uh, Molly together. Yes, is what uh, if, like if to we're me. being... It looks like people have taken MDMA and are sitting together. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. That's a good time. There's not. There's nothing wrong with that. Of course, there's nothing wrong. We're not here to yeah. judge that. And I think that was most people's reactions in this initially. Like, leave those people alone. They're just having fun. I mean, obviously, there is the fact that I mean, one of them is executive producing a movie star, and one of the other ones. But you know, yes, there's you know, that element. There's that out. Al- that that people didn't bring that up though. It was just more like what Th- three people. Yeah, like it was way more the the three the threesome element than the he's her boss element. But we're not super judgmental, and we do no. know adult adults make choices. Okay, so Taika didn't really say anything initially, but there were reports that Disney was kind of pissed because this is not uh, the image that Disney uh, wants to promote with uh, Thor and whatever, right? Yeah, and so he, but he remained quiet about it. And people, but people, most people had his back, and I can see why. And and I had his back too. You know, whatever they're doing in privacy of you know their movie set that's fine but i i he did eventually respond and i don't think anybody else picked up on this but i thought this response was so wild that i really had to share it with some people okay now during um his uh, his taika watiti's chat with the sunday morning herald sydney morning herald watiti watiti also shared shared what it had been like being in the court while uh filling uh filing the new movie I think Filing it's Australian. It. It's Australian. It's like barely in. It's like they, I think it's Australian <laughs> filing the new movie. Filing uh, the film, sure. At a time when I couldn't see my kids for almost seven months because there was no bubble, it was really nice to be surrounded by people who made me feel at home. Okay, that's really very strange. That is very strange, right? Because Yeah, he's talking about how welcome he felt by his lead actress and one of the most beautiful women in the world while his uh, separate wife is raising his kids <laughs> alone also like, also for seven like, why, months during quarantine why, while he's filming Thor 4. Why were you making out with, like, two adults? Well, I missed my children. It's, like, a little weird. <laughs> it's, like, a little weird. <laughs> and I wouldn't bring this up at all, except people were really mean to John Mulaney because, like, you, as soon as you got famous, you left your wife for a celebrity. I'm like, how did Tyke Ruatiti <laughs> talk? Maybe this is celebrity gossip, but I yeah. like a little bit of gossip sometimes. Wow. I thought this was a, a little bit of wife. gossip. Why not? Yeah, why not? All right. I moving. think his statement was a little weird. That's for sure. Jack, Woodstock mm-hmm. 99, yes. the documentary on HBO Max, Peace yes. and Love and Rage. Peace, Love and yes. Rage. Woo, everybody was talking about it this week. I think there's probably 10 podcasts about it this week. Yeah, I had to talk yeah. about it because I remember all of this stuff. I remember all this yeah. very vividly. At least I remember seeing it all on TV. Um, yeah. And that is part of the story, the fact that this was a big TV and TV managed right. uh disaster it was very much like an mtv spring break like an event thing that they were showing on mtv live the entire time yeah so for people who don't know i I can't imagine there is anyone listening who doesn't woodstock legendary music festival known for the peace the love the free love the free sex the last hurrah before the manson murders sent us down this dark neoliberal path towards reaganism bushism Trumpism, et cetera, et cetera. That's the simple version of uh, history, right? Woodstock was yeah. the last time that the boomers were cool or whatever, you know, right. <laughs> had hope and believed in a better world. N- Woodstock 94 comes along. Most people are pretty, like, skeptical and are like, this is fucking goofy, and this is like a cash-in, and this is yeah. selling out. N- folks, th- you might not believe me, but in the 90s, it was actually not cool to sell, to sell out, out and do anything <laughs> for money. It was actually considered a bad thing. So there was a lot of skepticism. I just remember this from watching MTV yeah. about Woodstock 94, but it turned out that, you know, with the acts they had and it, it just went off, it went off well and everybody liked it and everybody mm-hmm. thought it was a cool thing and it didn't really like have any problems, but it wasn't like, okay, we need to do another Woodstock 
again, right? right? It was like we did we like this is something that's supposed to happen it like happened. every thirty five okay, years, it. every yeah. thirty. It's a generational thing. It was sold as a generational sort of thing, right? But then someone, of course, gets the brilliant idea. Wait a minute, we made X amount of money on Woodstock mm-hmm. '95. How much can we make on the Woodstock '99? Wouldn't that Five be cool to make later. that money again? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's a mayor involved in the town, and it's like they're just trying to milk this thing right. uh, for all it's worth, similar to the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, p- couple problems, though. By the time '99 comes around, face of popular music has changed a little bit and can, and and kind of split off. And they talk about this in, in the documentary where you know you have in the early mid early to mid 90s you had basically everyone kind of listening to this alternative music all kind of together you have you know you have industrial you have love affair right. but um you know you kind of have most of that pop energy directed at you know these bands that are kind of mid-wave and can be played on the radio now, yeah. by the time you get to 99, you have a separation. You have people listening to boy bands who cannot be on the same stage as people who are listening to Linkin Park. They can't be at the same show at this point. So it pushes the show to be a lot more um, aggressive, metal heavy, because that right. was the popular rock music. Well, that was the other the thing time. I was thinking, you know, so we should talk, first of all, about this documentary. Separate from the event itself yes. and remembering the event, you know. The documentary is so weird. It's um, awful. It's actually one of there, the worst documentaries I've ever seen. But it's there fascinating. Are a lot, there are a lot of like really actually fucked up stuff, like events that happen in there. But then there's also like almost two hours of padding of literally it's like a PTA documentary. It's like for it's yes. like parents clutching their pearls. Like there's shit in there like like they're like they're like DMX did a call and response with the n-word <laughs> the crowd was yelling the n-word i'm like yeah but dmx like called for it you yeah, know what i mean it's like, like a five that, minute that segment that was made to be it's like so totally ominous and i'm like yeah well i don't know dmx was calling for it like it wasn't like they were just they shouted it from the crowd or anything like that there's also like you know honestly the documentary is very it's very well first of all moby is super annoying like having moby in there as the voice of reason and Scott Stapp as the voice of reason. <laughs> Almost everybody in it has like an axe to grind or is just lying or trying to create a narrative. That's the first problem with the documentary. And the documentary makes no effort to correct any of it or push back on anything. Even like like Bravo, right, will push back on the housewives when they lie during a confessional. <laughs> but this documentary absolutely not interested uh, in that whatsoever one of the like one of the most shocking things to me in the first very early on is how they talk about like this many sexual assaults that happen at the show mm-hmm. and there is a segment about a five minute segment of just men basically going around the long way around of saying that the reason there was so much assault at the festival sexual assault at the festival was because the women dressed too scantily and, right. this, and these they, were, had, they were flashing and stuff like that. And that's early on. And that's from the three, yeah. you know, documentary guys. These are the straight men in the show. And he basically says that I was shocked for him to say that. And they show the images of these women. These are just women going to a festival. Like, like right. they try to make it like these women are like, I, I are doing something like bizarre or wrong. Like, no, this is what like women go to festivals wearing body paint. Men go to festivals wearing body paint or wearing nude or loincloths. This is nothing unusual. This is stuff you see at the Little Fair or any rave today. But the way they frame it is like this, this was like this explosion of like pornographic, you know, apparel from these women who didn't know what they were doing and brought the assaults on themselves. It's absolutely disgusting. I, I did think and I was like, you know, there's a really like weirdly moralist tone to this documentary. And the thing is that, like, of course, Woodstock 99 is fucked up. And, you know, it's like there are some moments in this documentary where really fucked up and horrible things do happen. But it's padded around all this fear mongering about like fred durst yeah and, the like t- corn and stuff like that that feels like really out of there's also like a, a short montage where they're like you know young men were being fed more and more violent stuff than ever and it shows like the matrix 
yeah. and like Fight Club and yeah. shit. It's just it's like very weirdly like I I know they had to like keep up the ominous tone, you know, to like make it, you know, this this you know, for for this type of documentary, but a lot of it feels really like a stretch. You know what I mean? And but just in general, they kept talking about like why was this the lineup? And the answer to that question is because these were the most popular bands of 1999. Like this is what the lineup looked like on TRL every day. Like it's very bizarre to like look back with a 2021 viewpoint and be like, why did they book Limp Biscuit? It's like because that was the most popular band in the world. <laughs> yeah, and so the one of the, the my least favorite people in this film, and this film includes some disgusting individuals, including the concert promoter, who really is the villain uh, in all this, Moby. This mother... I've hated mm-hmm. this motherfucker yeah. since uh, basically this moment because he was very moralistic and preachy about this after the fact in a way that I knew was absolutely bullshit. And then we found out later does not reflect reflect his actual values. It was actually funny because absolutely positively, no one in like the electronic music scene took Moby's side when Eminem was like saying, fuck you, nobody listens to techno. So you know that Moby is always a piece of shit. And I hate that they actually brought him in this documentary and let him spin his bullshit and rehabilitate his image after Natalie Portman uh, exposed the fact that he lied about dating her when she was like half his age. A little weirdo. Yeah. All right. So here's this uh, Moby clip. One of the most infuriating and racist things I've ever seen in a documentary. Yeah. And he says stuff like this all the time. You know, a lot of times when like when white people have embraced hip hop, they've ignored the funk. They've ignored oh the R&B. God. You know, they've ignored the subtlety and they've embraced homophobia and misogyny. The four elements of hip hop. So, exactly. It's like he's trying to wokely say hip hop is racist and misogynist. You know yes. what I mean? He's like trying to say it wokely. He's like, obviously, there are these parts of hip hop that I appreciate as an NPR listener, but <laughs> Kid Rock, all he got was the rampant misogyny in hip hop. It's like, I, you know, dude, like, uh, he, there was also a moment in this where he was like, you know, snobbily not knowing any of the names of the bands on the lineup. And I'm like, number one, you know who the fuck they are. You're living in 1999. (laughs) Like These are the most popular bands of the year. You were going to the MTV like video music awards with these people. You wanted to be a celebrity with them. I'm sorry that worked out for you. But like (laughs) what's so shocking about this clip is like it it has Kid Rock on the screen and then Moby is the bigger, more racist douchebag. That's uh, (laughs) that's a really lot of effort. Yeah. But speaking of Fred Durst, Uh he's been the center of controversy, Mm -hmm. center of discussion after this Woodstock 99 documentary comes out because the documentary, uh, one of the villains they try to make is Fred Durst. Because Limp Bizkit... Uh, Which, were- by the way, come on. That is, like, so corn. That's, like, you're trying to, like, be scared of what, like, parents in 1999 <laughs> were afraid of? Like, you're trying to get me afraid of Fred Durst in the year 2021? Are you out of your fucking mind? Uh, on the Saturday night, Lollapalooza 99, Limp Bizkit were the uh, main event act. And according to them, they just played their usual show. Now, according to promoters... They, the promoters were asking them, hey, the crowd's getting a little bit wild. There's been a lot of assaults, a lot of dangerous crowd surfing. There's been destruction. There's been this. There's been that. And there has been all of that. And the festival has been a disaster up until that point. It's not Limp Biscuit's fault. I'm not sure why Limp Biscuit personally <laughs> was put in charge of that at that moment. I imagine that that would be the job of the promoter to make sure that the crowd does not get out of control, not the band. There's a whole chunk in the middle of this documentary where they like are talking about Limp Biscuit doing their show on Saturday night. And what it amounts to is like Limp Biscuit was like doing too good of a show. <laughs> it's like they're like Limp Biscuit got up there and they were rocking just far too hard. The crowd was loving it way too much. And then you'll notice and they play this like ominously. Like there's a part where he's like, you want I want you to fucking jump or whatever. And then like the drop happens and you see the whole crowd jumping and it's like shot all ominously. I'm like this is literally just a rock concert. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like what you're showing me is Fred Durst like 
you know, at, at, at his prime. And what I found, honestly, I'm like watching the footage and I'm like, it's so bizarre. They're trying to play this ominously because if anything, it's just like a weird relic of the of this like of when Corn became such a popular band that Corn's tattoo artist became a popular band. Like Corn <laughs> was so hot that the guy that did the tattoos for Corn also became the biggest band in the world. Like if anything it's like fascinating in, you know, like a hypernormalization kind of footage way. Not this like I I'm 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 sorry, I'm not going to be afraid of Fred Durst telling people break stuff in the year 2021. I'm just not. There are people, you know, who do blame Durst. Jonathan Davis famously has had feuded with Durst since Woodstock 99 over this, um, which, which is very Silly. funny because John Davis appears in the music video for Break Stuff himself. <laughs> in fact, he appears at the point of where he's Fred Durst is getting the most pissed off he's ever been during the song, and Jonathan Davis is hyping him up. So in the music video, he's providing the image that was in I mean, all of the men's heads at this concert. He did that himself. He, he provided the pre-hype before they got Leslie. to the concert. Just the larger context of all of this that like Jonathan Davis created a monster created a monster that went out of his control. Yes. <laughs> Jonathan Davis is like at this weird military base in nineteen ninety nine, like, good lord, like what have, <laughs> what I, have I done? <laughs> like what have I done? <laughs> the crowd like won't stop jumping. <laughs> like, good God. <laughs> corn set looks fucking sick though. I actually might go back and watch it. Corn set looks Honestly, fucking sick from it. A lot of the a lot of the stuff like watching it i was like you know in 1999 some of this looks like a good show yeah <laughs> and and one thing i do want to mention that the documentary doesn't really cover and I, I, this documentary feels like it could have been made in 99 it has the sexual politics of a documentary made uh -huh. in 99 it also seems to have forgotten that mtv completely rehab Limp Bizkit and Fred Durst's image, MTV, Viacom, all the record labels. After this, they like pushed pretty hard for Fred Durst to become like Eminem level. And right now, I'm showing a clip of Fred Durst in 2000 walking on stage with Christina Aguilera at the MTV Video Music Awards. This shit gets memory hold. They, right. they made Fred Durst a villain for like a couple of weeks. But then yeah. when they realized that, hey, all these guys were going to keep making money, they didn't they have yeah. a problem with them. I mean, listen, I watched this Woodstock documentary and I'm like, there's a lot of sounds like a really lot of fucked up shit happens happened there. And I think that the blame is 100 percent on the organizers. Oh, yeah. I think like the organizers setting up the porta potties said that the water's mixed with shit and that there's like rapes happening because like no one there's no security there. And, you know, people are getting like pressed to the front of a crowd of like 10 football fields worth of people. I'm like, yeah, it sounds like you fucking idiot. And also, you know, people talked about it then, and this is like the big headline you remember to this day. And they even let them downplay it in the documentary. But the four dollar water was oh, a big yeah. fucking problem. And like the fact that people at the end of three days like rioted over the four dollar water is not really that surprising to me. You know, I I really think that this documentary does a lot of work to try to like be like, you know, corn and limp biscuit really got them riled up when I'm like, I think that what happened here was people tried to make quick money and didn't like like it's Firefest, you know, it's yes. not fucking it's not like an example of like the day Limp Biscuit went too far. It's Firefest. Yeah. People just set up something and wanted to make money and like ended up like pushing people past their limit. Yeah, when it when it's not blaming the women for being assaulted, it is trying to paint this toxic masculinity narrative about the music itself. It's like saying the problem is that this this rock music has too much hip hop influence, and like <laughs> it's it's gotten too uh, aggressive and sexual and misogynistic, which is completely ridiculous. This is this was a disaster of the of corporation corporate making. It was MTV was yeah. partially responsible for it. There's yeah. there's clips and uh, of like the MTV journalists like running for their lives after Viacom tells them that they're no longer no longer responsible for them. I was like, how did you all not quit MTV the next day? 
there were other media companies right then, right? Carson Daly mentions he's like Viacom said we weren't safe anymore, and we like got out of a we got in a van, and I just remember driving through cornfields, and I'm like, man, the i the the idea of Carson Daly in a van like speeding away from Woodstock '99 like it's a war zone is so funny to me. <laughs> it's so fucking funny that they like bundled up Carson, and he's like, "We got to get out of here, man. We gotta go." <laughs> One bone I have to pick as as a DJ, as a rave kid. Uh, for some reason, one of one of the journalists in this makes this bizarre claim that it made no sense to have a rave tent at the event, and it was just a money grab. One of the goofiest things I've ever heard. What they, she said that no one who likes electronic music listens to Limp Biscuit in Lincoln Park. No one's going to listen to Limp Biscuit and then go over to the rave tent and want to like do ecstasy and like go to a rave all night. I'm like, why not? Are you out of your mind? Like you think people that like aggressive music don't also like to do drugs and vibe <laughs> out? Like, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, it, that was very weird. This idea that like, well, there's new metal fans and then there's, you know, then there's much the much higher grade and better ra rave fans, and never the twain shall meet. Never the twain shall meet. But well, the documentary kind of tried to show the rave tent and like a dark light uh, with the rest of the footage by showing like scantily clad women, but the women weren't being groped or molested. They were just like at a rave and having fun, and but the but they still use like the somber dark music. It's a awful right. documentary like the rave tent was actually like fine from what the documentary what you actually see in the documentary and that's why you still have rave tents at shows today because ravers like right. going to those shows people like chilling out like they were like so shows went on until late at night and then the rave tent was going until five in the morning people had to only sleep a few hours and then wake up and go to shows again the next day i'm like yeah that sounds like a party you know what i mean i'm like yeah that sounds like a festival that they were throwing there yeah. they're like are you trying to say that it needs to like be lights off at 10 p.m <laughs> so churchy and moralist a lot of the and it, and it and you know and and like i keep saying there was real fucked up shit that went on there and it's just like it makes it all feel so much goofier when it's like surrounded by all these like just people getting like you know worked up about literally fucking corn <laughs> yeah yeah and i mean the lesson that i would learn from watching this documentary is you know make water free at festivals don't have three-day yeah. festivals have two-day festivals at the most think yeah. about your music lineup carefully i think festivals have done maybe one of four of those things everything else yeah. has basically gotten worse and they've just made them more and more expensive well, and harder to go to that's basically also really bizarrely this whole documentary ends up being like an ad for Coachella. Yeah. At the, at the end of the documentary, they're like, but that year there was another festival and they had progressive rappers there. Oh, God. And there were, <laughs> they were had rappers who were singing about progressive things. <laughs> and that was in a little valley called Coachella. And then in the after show movie, like text parts, they're like, you know, um, Woodstock 99 only made the town $200,000. Coachella makes Coachella Valley over $100 million a year. I'm like, what the fuck does Coachella have to do with any of this? Why are we, like, boosting, bigging up Coachella here in the end of the movie? What what is what are we talking about? What, what, what do I care that Coachella makes them a lot of money? Woodstock is supposed to be a once-in-a-lifetime thing, right? Once in a generation. Right. Now yeah. we have, you know, 20 of these every year in america and none of them are affordable none of them are accessible right like if you like if you 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 have a disability like it's going to be very difficult for you to go to these if you're if you're out if you're not in good shape if you're not young if etc etc it's hard hard difficult to go all these now of course Lollapalooza is happening during covid what i don't even want to get into it jack don't even want don't even want to open that can of worms about Lollapalooza going on but this is not what a music festival should be, but when you look at this, this is basically what every music festival is now 
almost no exception. <laughs> There's no real difference between how Woodstock 99 was organized and how Lollapalooza is organized. They, they just have like a better like logistics slightly. And But it seems like the thing to me is like, why are we making these big, huge festivals? Why aren't we having more local, smaller festivals around local venues that already exist and can house people and yeah. maybe you don't have to bring all the biggest stars in the world maybe you can bring like a hundred great bands at different local bars and that can be the mo you, the music festival and then that money goes to the local establishments and not just one uh, asshole who will just straight up let people die if it will make yeah. them a buck this documentary you know they do have opposing viewpoints but they also give a lot of space and time to the organizers whose fault all of this is yes and they really give a lot of credence to like the organizers view of the event um where they did nothing wrong and four dollar water which was the same price as beer was definitely okay yeah and he even makes he makes the argument after the scholars do uh, that the assault, the sexual assaults were the fault of how the of the women right. for addressing uh, scantily. So the documentary yep. like literally helped him make dark. I don't know how this got yep. on HBO Max. And I don't know why more people aren't talking about those well, elements. Maybe it's Bill Simmons to me. is a dumbass. I think it could be because Bill Simmons and his production team are dumbasses, and you know they just I don't know they they sometimes don't get the focus right on their documentaries. And I'm just realizing now while I'm showing this on screen, the documentary complains about MTV showing all the nudity that was happening on the... But the documentary shows it too. shows the exact yep. same thing. Yep. They're showing you all the same nudity, all the same women who were exploited by MTV airing their nudity without their faces blurred out. They are now um, airing their nudity without their faces blurred out on HBO. But 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 ominously instead of uh, salaciously. We have one more segment and we're going to be doing this every week. We're going to be talking about mutual aid, mutual right. aid. So if you have a mutual aid fund, please send us an email. Let us know what it is. We will promote it on the show as long as it's on up and up. As long as you're a comrade. We got you. Yeah. And this week we have someone, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jack, yeah. that someone you worked with sent us in Vegas from Vegas uh, DSA. The Venmo is Las Vegas dash DSA dash two. They do this great thing called Sunday Solidarity where they distribute hygiene products and other uh, products that are uh, vastly needed. I mean, for people who are unhoused or don't have as much money, things like deodorant and feminine hygiene products. You ever think about how you go to CVS and those are like locked behind a gate that like sets off an alarm if you try to get them like Things like that are are very hard to get for unhoused people. And so, you know, what they do over there at uh, the Vegas DSA um, is, you know, get the money to uh, just get it and hand it out for free to people. Um, the Vegas DSA is also a great DSA. Uh, they are, you know, they they were instrumental in the overtaking um, of the uh, Las Vegas uh, Democratic Party. Um, we'll all remember that news story uh, from a couple months ago that they they won the elections and took over the party from the inside. And so the fucking Democratic Party ransacked like the bank accounts and donated themselves a bunch of money to like uh, their consultancy firms and shit like that. Um, absolutely fucked up, but they are doing good work over there uh, at Las Vegas DSA. And Sean is a good guy. I met him when we went out there to. Um, you know, door to canvas for Bernie. Um, and yeah, they're doing really good work out there. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good one. Peace. Like what you hear? Want to hear more? Check us out at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle session.substack.com for all our public episodes, commercial free, as well as hundreds of bonus episodes. Thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong.